Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo uh, modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Pornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once-a-century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's longtime partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift, from how semiconductor shortages in Taiwan influence Japanese military spending, to how a new scramble for rare earth metals is remaking US foreign policy. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is multipolarity charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week. Some are calling it the greatest leak since Snowden, others the worst fake since the Hitler diaries. There's an info war over dozens of classified US Defense Department documents that found their way to the internet last week. But what does the leak tell us about the bigger game of jockeying for a world after the Ukraine war? You've had the handshakes. Now what's in the hand luggage? Emmanuel Macron returned from China with something to declare a new vision for French diplomacy. They're in your Tesla, your computer, your wind turbine, your robot vacuum cleaner, and China makes 85% of them. Now they're proposing their equivalent of the chip ban on rare earth metals. What are the stakes? And will we need to do our own hoovering again? But first... Multipolar Macron. Mr. Macron's trip to China did not end once his trip to China had ended, Philip Pilkington. There was... A pretty big bombshell on the way home. He returned and spoke immediately to a Politico.eu reporter and uh, really dropped some truth bombs. Last week, we were covering Macron and China. And I think what we were mainly talking about was we were speculating why he was there. As keeps happening with these multipolar phenomenon, they tend to accelerate unpredictably and extremely rapidly, which is what we saw with Macron. He got onto his French equivalent of an Air Force One jet, and he had a bit of a journalistic huddle, including a Politico reporter. And he basically said that France is going to pursue its own foreign policy. And not just that, I mean, that would be I mean, that might be interesting in the sense that you could try and read between the lines. Diplomatic speak is often quite carefully laid out. So you could, if he said something like that, you could read into it. But it seemed um, it seemed actually uncharacteristically for the French, who are usually very subtle in the way that they message these things. Macron really went at it with a hammer and said that US interests and European interests don't always align. 
trying to provoke a situation in Taiwan, which is how he characterized American policy there, which let's talk about that in a moment, because that in itself is is quite a provocative statement. He said that was all wrong. That wasn't going to help anyone. So it really felt like um, Macron was um, had gone to China and obviously spoke privately with a lot of people in the Chinese government. And it seemed like the message he was trying to convey is that basically France, at least, if not all of Europe, I mean, the main power place in Europe, disagree with how America's handling the Taiwan situation. They seem to be drawing a line in the sand and saying, we are not going to back at the Americans on any aggressive tactics in Taiwan. And we're open to a new, I mean, what else can you call it? A new multipolar world. The Europeans may be closed for business with Russia due to the Ukraine war, but they do not appear to be closed for business with the Chinese. And they seem to be explicitly saying that they want this relationship to develop, even to the extent that they're guaranteeing not to get involved in any um, aggressive foreign policy actions. I mean, it's reminiscent in some ways of what the French and the Europeans did with Iraq and the the American responses, which we can talk about a little bit more later, are very reminiscent of what happened when when the French dug their heels in on Iraq. But obviously, the consequences of this are far, far greater than the consequences of them opposing American intervention in Iraq. The first thing I would say about what Macron had to say about Europe gaining its own strategic autonomy, about Europe pursuing its own interests rather than the interests of outside powers, about Europe not getting dragged into other people's fights, which may seem quite incendiary given the state of the world at the moment and the very close relationship between the US and Europe on issues in Eastern Europe. I think it's reasonable to say, and it must be said though, that Macron is 100% right. There is nothing wrong with that. And indeed, that was the whole logic of the European Union. The whole point, I mean, the European Union, when it was set up, when it when it was founded as the European Coal and Steel Community, and ultimately as the European Community, and then eventually the EU, the whole idea of that was twofold. First of all, for the pragmatists among European statesmen, it was designed to be an elegant and civilized solution to the German question in Europe, how to bring Germany into Europe and how to make everybody comfortable with Germany's position in Europe, including Germany herself. But for the dreamers, the people with a really big vision, with a real ideological driving force behind the EU, it was to create a European trading block and economy that would be big enough to be able to pursue its own interests in a world which at the time was dominated by two great continental-sized nations in the United States and the USSR. So the whole point of the European Union has been that, and certainly that was the reason de Gaulle got involved. He understood, I'm sure, when he signed the Treaty of Rome, that France was going to lose some of its sovereignty because there would be horse trading among the various nations with regard to their own national, economic, and diplomatic interests. However, those bits of those strategic goals, those interests that were left over, 
could be pursued with far greater force because of the scale and power that such a union would uh, hold. So this is the whole point of the European Union. It's to allow European nations to maintain a degree of sovereignty, to have a much greater range of strategic maneuver, and to be able to pursue their own interests rather than be terms takers from other great powers. That's a that's the whole point of it. And I think there's nothing that uh, President Macron said that goes against that. I think there's nothing that he said that was wrong. I would say, though, that he's been talking in this manner for a very long time, for a very long time. For instance, he called NATO brain dead a few years ago. He said, essentially said NATO was done, and he was very much pushing for an EU joint military. Of course, the reason for that is that France is pretty much the only game in town, both in terms of its military procurement system, which is very strong, much stronger than Britain's or Germany's, uh, and in terms of its the size and scale of its military and especially its command and control, it would have really put France in the, in the driving seat of any such European military. So Macron has talked about this for a while. It's a great idea. It's the right thing for Europe to want to do. It's the sensible and strategic thing to, to want to do. I think Macron is one of, sadly, one of the few European leaders who is clear-eyed enough to say that. And by the way, for any listeners, I'm not necessarily pro-EU. I was in favor of Britain leaving the European Union. So this isn't a European, uh, a dreaming European federalist speaking. I'm just saying that if I were the Europeans, given their history, given their position in the world, this is exactly what I would want to do. However, I just don't think Europe is in a position to do that. It's all well and good saying we want strategic autonomy, but do they have the means to get the sort of strategic autonomy that they want, i.e. full freedom of movement to the extent that, say, China or the US has? I don't think they have, personally. And I think that the last year has pushed that farther away. They've lost a lot of room for a maneuver on gas. They're now reliant on the US for a great bulk of their energy, and there aren't really many other options in the world. They were reliant on Russia, but that was much cheaper, and there were other options. Okay, As we've seen, they've gone to the US. In addition to that, although China is the European Union's biggest trading partner, I believe I'm right in saying that, the United States is still its big biggest export market. The EU is wholly reliant on the United States now for defense. NATO has been strengthened hugely, which reduces the space and scope for a EU military, which of course would be crucial for Europe ultimately to be able to pursue its own interests. They're no further forward with regard to a unified uh, foreign policy and diplomatic service, although there are certain EU diplomatic missions where it suits individual member states. So it's the right idea. I just don't see any way that they can actually achieve this. Yeah, I think we should just be a bit more modest at first about what Macron's saying. He didn't lay out a full strategy in that regard. Now, you're absolutely right. That is what he wants. That is ultimately Macron's dream, and he wants France to lead that. There's no doubt about that. But what is being discussed here, I think we should take for what it is. It's more limited than that. What the French are saying is, we're not going along with an American plan, which we believe is not in our interest, which has massive geopolitical ramifications. And that's what that's why this is fundamentally different from Iraq. Iraq had geopolitical ramifications. We've seen them in the Middle East. 
but they it hasn't had this scale. And France is saying, no, we are not going along with a strategy that America is pursuing that we believe isn't in our interest. And I think the subtext was also probably isn't in America's interest. We are not going along with that. So that that is fundamentally what is being discussed here. Now, that can lead in all sorts of directions. It doesn't just have to lead immediately to some attempt to form a perfect strategic union or work out all the nuts and bolts. It just means that France, France and probably Europe as well, because let's be honest, I don't think Macron went over there and said those things on that plane without talking to the Germans first, who don't want to say that stuff explicitly yet for domestic reasons. But this could be the beginning of making decisions that will go against US slash, if we can call NATO policy a policy, um, go against that and, and pursue their own interests. I mean, even you brought up energy. I think, for example, now all bets are off on energy, actually. I've always said I don't expect Russian gas to come into Europe while the war is, is going on. But I've always thought that there was a chance that Europe would revert to Russian gas after the war through necessity. I think that's just become a much more high, high probability uh, occurrence now, because doing that would actually probably annoy America less than doing what Macron is currently doing, because America are really much more obsessed about the Taiwan and China question than they are about the Europe question. I think we probably agree with that, but you know, some people it might appear that Russia's kind of all in on Ukraine. And as you've said in the past, they are kind of stuck there. And it is actually kind of draining their resources and draining their time and attention. But in their hearts, the really serious strategists in America probably want to have done with Europe to a very large extent, and they want to pivot to Asia, but they know that in order to pivot to Asia, they have to have at least some of the world on their side. Because remember, a lot of the world hasn't been on the side of the West during this Ukraine conflict. We've all seen that map that shows who imposed the sanctions and who didn't. And although it's the very wealthy countries that imposed the sanctions and denounced the Russian invasion, it's the big population centers and the, high, and the rapidly growing economies that didn't do that. Now, with that map, let's call it, you can at least envision how the US might kind of confront China, uh, might try and form an alternative trade uh, union with Europe or wh whatever it would shake out as. Without Europe, though, I mean, what's, what's really left? I mean, it is really just America, uh, Britain, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, um, maybe the Philippines, depending on who's president. <laughs> Poland, I guess, Latvia, Lithuania. I mean, really, we are talking about you can count these countries. So again, I, I, I don't want to go from zero to 60 on this one and say that this is going to be Europe emerging as, as the dream that Macron undoubtedly has and that Charles de Gaulle had and that Chirac had and that Mitterrand had and that they all had. I don't want to go from zero to 60 there, but I do want to point out that this is a massive statement I think it's probably going to be the event of the year, frankly. I think that interview probably will end up being the event of the year. And it's going to completely change the game. And we're already seeing that if you start reading American press on this and the anti-French sentiment that seems to be building up in America. But perhaps we can talk about that in a moment. Have you seen Freedom Fries being sold at McDonald's again? Is that <laughs> I, I haven't yet um, got my Freedom Fries, but uh, we might get some. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, so I agree with you i don't mean to say that macron is going to set a five-year plan to turn the eu into a 
uh, super state with uh, uh, a, a navy that contains 11 aircraft carrier strike groups and has embassies in every nation and a unified intelligence agency. However, I think that even the limited ambitions that, they, that he might have in this direction are quite questionable. Let's get down to basics here. You are right that for the United States, in terms of strategy 101, as John Mearsheimer often says, China is far more important than Russia. Ergo, Taiwan is far more important to Ukraine. And especially so for Taiwan, because Taiwan has a certain keystone effect because of its strategic location on several different levels. Why did Macron go to China though? Let's let's have a think of you know, let's get that down into very simple terms. I suspect that that meeting was arranged for the following reason. After Xi's visit to Moscow, I think Macron wanted to know what Xi and China's red lines were when it came to Taiwan and the US interactions with Taiwan and to try to divine something of China's intentions and plans for Taiwan and where their red lines were. On the opposite side of things, I think that she probably wanted to know where France's or, or where the EU's red lines were when it came to cooperating with Russia with regard to Ukraine. You know, can they send them weapons? Can they not? And And, and there was a kind of dance there of the two of them feeling each other out. I suspect what's happened is that Macron has got some kind of idea about where Xi's red lines are. He sees the writing on the wall in terms of the way that the Americans are are pushing this. And of course, the Europeans want to continue trading with China. As I mentioned just before, uh, China is the EU's biggest trade partner. It's of paramount importance to... Um, European growth strategy. They really do sell a lot of quite high value added goods there. And in return, they get a lot of uh, consumer goods and uh, capital goods and all of the rest of it. So it is of paramount importance to the EU's trading strategy. They've just taken a terrible hit to their economic model because of the, uh, the Russia situation, caused in part, by the way, because the EU didn't have any strategic autonomy, so they ended up letting America in the driving seat with regard to EU, uh, with regard to Ukraine policy, and over many years that has led, for one reason or another, in the direction that we're heading now. So I don't think that Europe wants another blow up with regard to China, and I think what Macron is trying to say is like, look, let's slow down here. I just don't think that the EU is going to have any influence on that. I think that what's going to happen is the Americans are going to continue going at the same pace as they are. And ultimately, when the proverbial hits the fan, the EU are just going to be dragged into it. And there's really nothing. I mean, what what is it that the, the only way that the EU might slow things down is if by the very fact that they're signaling their displeasure, by the very fact that they're saying like, look, don't push too hard on this, because if you do and we see that you're to blame, we're not coming along, that might in itself cool the Americans' heels, because you're 100% right in what you say. I think that US strategy for Taiwan utterly collapses if they can't bring Europe along and united on their side of the ledger. It really does. So maybe the actual words themselves will have an effect, but 
ultimately, I just don't see how the EU can stop what America is doing with regard to Taiwan at the moment. I don't think it's a question of if they can stop what America is doing. America makes its own decisions. It can, in theory, make any decision it wants, but there are constraints constraints, excuse me, on its actions. And the big constraint here is economic. The fact of the matter is, I mean, I'm not a huge European Union fan, although I have to say that things that have happened in the past year, I see an increasing reason for the European Union to exist. And I'm going on the fence a little bit more. But I am not really an apologist. That said, Europe is the largest economy in the world. And that's just a fact. Now, some people can say, oh, well, it's not really an economy. It is. It is. Okay. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a single currency. It has some idiosyncratic features at the national level, but so does the US, by the way, at a state level, and so does China at a state level. It is the largest economy in the world. And we've talked about on the podcast before the potential consequences if America went to war over Taiwan. The economic consequences to America would be devastating. I think even with Europe on board, America will be risking hyperinflationary collapse of their economy because the Chinese exports of capital goods and key components that the Americans need will be cut off immediately. And the Chinese will probably nuke the US treasury market and the dollar foreign exchange market. And I think those things combined would create catastrophic levels of inflation. Now add on top of that, that Europe's gone. Because the only way that America is going to be able to remotely sanction China is to get Europe on board. And the only way to get Europe on board would be to do secondary sanctions on Europe. And that would be endgame for America. That would be it. The economy would be wiped off the map. It would be locking out not just Russia, Iran, not just Russia, Iran, and all the developing countries, not just Russia, Iran, all the developing countries, and China, the, which is, has a larger economy than the US measured on a PPP basis, which is the correct way of measuring it. But on top of that, America's longest term trade partner and biggest trade partner, Europe, the largest economy in the world. At a certain point, this becomes a fool's errand and it becomes so manifestly illogical from an economic point of view that risking any of this would actually be insane. I think you're right. I my general view is, though, that uh, the U.S. has a great deal of leverage over Europe. Uh, the U.S., in the event that China invaded Taiwan, would be able to bring to bear uh, a great deal of economic pressure on Europe, a great deal of moral pressure, a great deal of uh, media pressure. There would be huge media and political pressure for Europe to act. Behind the scenes, the U.S. would be pushing. I think that there's very little that the Europeans could do to prevent that. Now, would China invade Taiwan? I don't think the Chinese want to invade Taiwan. I think that, and, and as I believe you think, Philip, that the ideal for the Chinese is there'll be a slow process of almost osmosis where the exchange of um, and services and workers and capital between the two countries continues getting greater and greater. The Chinese economy continues getting larger and larger, more powerful, more important, and eventually uh, happens naturally by itself, uh, and there'll be no issue there. I don't think that the United States will allow this to happen. I think that they will attempt to push China into a corner where essentially um, 
China is Beijing is faced with the choice of losing Taiwan forever or fighting for it. And in that sort of scenario, I think Europe would simply be dragged along. The US has too much leverage over Europe. And I think it would be extraordinarily difficult for Europe to resist uh, the political or diplomatic pressure. And I think ultimately they would fall in behind the US. Not if the European leaders take a firm stance. They didn't do it on Iraq. They won't do it again. If they take a firm stance on it, there won't be any moving the the ball. The the reason that Ukraine was look the reason that the Europeans backed the Americans on the Ukraine situation. There's multiple moving parts to it, but I think the largest is they were already bought in to the U.S. strategy on Ukraine, and when that strategy changed remarkably due to the Russian invasion last year. Europe were put in a position where they had to really continue to back that strategy. And all those things that you just talked about definitely were tailwinds moving in that direction. But if Europe takes a stance, which is we do not want conflict in that region, and which will be the logical consequence of that, we recognize Taiwan as part of China, then there won't be any resetting it. There won't be any. The the European politicians aren't puppets of America. I know some people say this online, but it's not true. And if if people didn't realize it wasn't true when Schultz went to Beijing in November, people should really realize it's not true from what Macron just said on the plane three days ago. There are overlapping interests between Europe and America. There are things, security pacts and so on, that Europe have bought into and that America have a great deal of control over. But it's not everything. It's really not everything. Europe do have quite a bit of autonomy and they have quite a bit of wiggle room and it looks like they're going to use it. Spring leak. There was a leak of numerous rafts, scores of uh, intelligence briefing documents that appear to have been sitting online since uh, late February, early March and have only recently been discovered and released to the world. They contained a whole range of very interesting and also quite embarrassing from the American perspective that they were spying on allies, including South Korea and and, uh, Britain, among others, uh, or accusations against Mossad and their potential involvement in the recent uh, constitutional protest, which we on Multipolarity covered, fairly recent podcast. Just interesting stuff from our perspective and that you asked with regard to Europe's Ukraine policy was the the first set of documents which covered the US military assessment of the Ukraine situation was rather more uh, sober, sobering, if you like, than some of the media coverage. These documents uh, suggested that in a whole range of areas, including air defense, including available armor, including the new uh, strike a maneuver unit that the Ukrainians are building of some 12 brigades, even in terms of the manning and equipment available for that, far worse than perhaps the picture that's been painted in the media hitherto, and has had quite a sobering effect on many of um, the military uh, analysts who write regularly in our newspapers. Yeah, so I think to, to give some context on this, I think we at Multipolarity don't really like to comment too much on the Ukrainian war situation just because there's so much fog of war 
everybody seems to have an idea of where the war is going and it always takes a turn in another direction. So there's often not a great deal of point speculating about it. That said, over the past few months, we have seen the Ukrainians saying that they need more and more weapons, that they need tanks, that they need air defense and so on. And the West has not been able to provide it. And the West hasn't been able to provide it because they don't have it. I mean, maybe America has some Patriot missile batteries or whatever, but they need them. The surpluses have largely run out. And that's why the, the I think those tank deliveries earlier in the year um, were quite disappointing in a lot of ways. So I think we can safely say the leak isn't terribly surprising to us. I think we have definitely been watching that trend and saying, you know, it does seem like they're... they're the, the, the Europeans and the Americans might be a little bit out of, out of ammo here and so on. So with the leak, which the press reports seem to suggest is genuine, I think now there is a real case building outside of the fog of war that Ukraine might be in a, in a vulnerable position in this coming spring and summer if, if and when the Russians engage in an offensive or if when the Ukrainians attempt a counteroffensive. I think... The more interesting aspect of this, rather than trying to figure out, you know, look at the tea leaves and figure out what shakes out of that, is more so what will happen if Ukraine starts to be perceived as being beaten by Russia in the coming months. Obviously, we just talked about Macron's big statement on his airplane. The world is changing at a very, very rapid rate. And Ukraine is the piece on the chessboard that Europe and America have put all of their heft behind. And they've made extreme promises about what what fruit this is going to bear, up to and including Ukraine retaking the Crimean Peninsula, which many people have said is not realistic. Uh, up to including uh, revitalizing democracy and liberty all over the world. Yes, overturning the Putin regime. Ever, I mean, all these promises have been made. Now, now I don't think anyone's expecting, you know, Crimea to be taken or Putin to fall or anything. I mean, maybe some people are, but we're certainly not. But, but certainly, if Ukraine started to suffer a series of defeats that were very visible in the coming months, as these leaks seem to suggest, it's at a very febrile moment where a lot of other things in Western geopolitical strategy are coming apart at the seams. I mean, it's what we talk about all the time. I'd pass it over to you first. I mean, what what sort of consequences do you think that would have? Well, first of all, let's get into a little bit of detail about why we're starting to think about longer-term consequences here. Um, so what the leaked document said was basically that Ukraine's S-300 and Buk systems of air defense, which are the surface-to-air missiles that attack air targets, and they are Soviet legacy equipment, basically. Um, They will run out in mid-April and early May, respectively, at current rates of fire for the Ukrainians. Now, this was a report prepared at the end of February, so things might have changed then. Ukraine might have reduced its rate of fire. But certainly, they believed that Ukraine had months' worth of air defense left. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that, essentially, Russia would then be able to use its air force over the battlefield, in the theater, without having to worry about air defenses. Essentially, it would have air 
uh, superiority, if not quite air supremacy as yet, because Ukraine still has a remnant, a you know, a few tens of uh, fighter jets left, and it it, it would still have man pads, uh, man portable air defense systems uh, available to it. So it would get air supremacy, and that would make the battle space far harder for Ukraine. It would allow Russia to start attacking with really big bombs, um, fixed uh, logistics targets. It would allow things like ground support. It would allow Russia to start using air to attack uh, massed formations. Now, that's not to say that Ukraine wouldn't be able to uh, muster an attack under such circumstances, but it would make it far harder and it would lead to far greater casualties and far greater losses of materiel. So that was one side of things. But there was further disappointment as well, uh, you know, for those people uh, for those people who are enthusiastically supporting Ukraine. And that was that the, um, the 12 brigades that are being formed to form this kind of corpse-size um, maneuver unit to uh, attack in the spring is going to be split between uh, three brigades that are being uh, equipped with current Ukrainian army equipment and uh, nine brigades that are going to be equipped with NATO equipment and and the soldiers are being trained to NATO standards. But the numbers don't seem to add up. The numbers of equipment don't seem to add up to them being fully full-strength brigades in NATO terms. So, for instance, for the nine brigades, there's going to be, apparently, once all the deliveries come, 253 tanks and about 860 armoured personnel carriers or infantry fighting vehicles. So just to explain, armoured personnel and infantry fighting vehicles, they look a little bit like tanks, slightly smaller than tanks. You can fit somewhere between six and 15 soldiers in one of these things and they quite often have a weapon a kind of something ranging from a a 20 millimeter gun or 22 millimeter gun in the case of the uh of some of the russian ones up to a something like a tank gun and in the bradley's case they even have anti-tank missiles on the side of them as well so what that means is that each brigade would have about 28 tanks and 95 of these infantry fighting vehicles slash armoured personnel carriers. Now, to compare that to NATO standard, so these brigades are going to have 28 tanks each. The NATO standard for an armoured brigade would be 90 tanks each. So just a little bit more than three times more than these will have. And it's a similar story with the infantry fighting vehicles. They'll have about 95 each compared with the NATO standard of about 200. So this is going to be very hard. Of course, you know, Ukraine is, is, is probably unlikely to engage in a kind of a full frontal assault and, 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 and blood and thunder and heavy metal armor. They'll, they'll try and strike fast and deep, penetrate the front lines and defeat the, 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 the Russian forces in battles of maneuver. That's how they'll look to do it. So maybe they don't need all of these extra things, but it does suggest a parlous position for their military. It does suggest that indeed this might be one and done in terms of their um, their offensive capability. What would happen in Europe if Ukraine does start to falter? What if this attack does start to go badly? Well, ultimately, 
a Russian victory in Ukraine would be the perhaps the greatest humiliation for the West going. It it would cement the multipolar world. I mean, let's be clear about this. It would mean that the end of the unipolar moment, which began in 1989 or 1991, depending on how you want to put it, that period of time would be indisputably over because Russia would have taken on the entire West. The entire West has pumped about as much as they can into this. They might have joined, you know, filtered it in slowly, but they would have taken on the entire West and they would have scored a win. So I think that would be it. That I mean, at the end of the day, that would be it. The, 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 the multipolar world would be upon us and it would shatter any dreams, any ideas, any misconceptions that the unipolar world could return. The old order led by the US could somehow be maintained given the right mix of diplomacy and force. No, it would be all over. People would be forced to reassess it would be a huge shock to the system yeah i definitely think that's right in terms of the kind of how the history book will be written if that happens i think that's pretty much how it'll be written i guess um i guess it's probably worth thinking about too how it kind of catalyzes events in a sense ukraine for the past few months has been really at a standstill since the um ukrainian counteroffensive that uh that successfully took kharkiv and Kherson. There's been a very bloody battle, obviously, in Bakhmut, which the Russians do appear to be making advances in. But even even as the Russians make advances, they're quite slow. And it's easy enough for the West and NATO to play down, you know, the importance of Bakhmut, for example, or what have you. I think what'll be really interesting to watch in the coming months is as I as as I said earlier, if Ukraine starts to visibly start uh, losing in in whatever way that takes, whether it be a failed counteroffensive or whether it be a Russian offensive that starts breaking through Ukrainian positions, anything that would cause visual losing on Ukraine's behalf, I think, could really, really catalyze opinions in Europe. I mean, as we were just talking about Macron turning around and telling America that they're not necessarily going to go along with everything that happens in Taiwan, I think. Whatever instinct is driving that in the European politicians will be massively catalyzed by any visual losing by the Ukrainian army. Now, of course, some of that is slightly unfair because the US and Europe have lined up behind Ukraine together. And ever since you know the, the, the discussions around the Minsk Accords and so on, it has been a joint effort by the US and the EU. But I think in the EU... This is seen as part of NATO strategy led by the United States. And so if that losing starts to happen, I'm not saying European leaders can wash their hands of it and say, this isn't our fault, it's the Americans' fault. I don't think they'll be able to do that. I don't think it would be an honest thing to do. But I think behind the scenes, I think this will really drive down morale in the NATO relationship. And I wonder if the first casualty of a lost Ukraine war or a losing Ukraine war will actually be NATO itself. At the very least, it would lead to a great deal of soul-searching, and I think some huge changes would be on the table. I think that the very fact that it would be so seismic at the sort of level that you and I have talked about, that the, you know, the, the, the end of US, uh, a US-led unipolar system where the US was the only pole it was the great power. There was no constraints on its 
actions around the world and you're putting NATO onto the table as well. I think that that very fact in and of itself would make any any period at, at which Ukraine looked to be on the ropes and with and, uh, and, and with uh, wobbly knees getting hammered, I think it would make it very dangerous, actually, because I think there, there would be a lot of people saying, like, look, we just cannot afford to lose this. Rules of attraction. Recently, a, a story's broken that China's considering, it hasn't said it's going to do this, but it's considering responding to this uh, this kind of US economic warfare by restricting the exports of rare earth metals. And that's something that you know a little bit about. You've written about it in Unheard, uh, unheard.com, fantastic website. Philip's column is one of the best there. And uh, just recently, it's been on rare earth metals. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I'm sure it's only the best because Andrew Collingwood's articles are not currently being published on Unheard, which the editors obviously have to sort out. On the chip ban, so this, I mean, some context is definitely needed for this. First of all, this isn't the first time this has been mentioned. The first mention of this kind of rumor swirling around that I could find was in 2019. I think the Chinese viewed it as response to kind of the Trump era trade war, which now seems like a very uh, minor skirmish after everything that's happened. In 2021, there were formal threats of this as well. The Chinese said, we're serious about this, we might do it. So what would it mean? Well, first of all, China is by far the largest producer of rare earth metals. It accounts for about 60% of rare earth mining. It accounts for 85% of rare earth processing and 90% of high, high strength rare earth permanent magnet manufacturing. Now, why do we care about magnets? Magnets matter a lot. And when you dive deep into the mines of the rare earth reading material, you'll find that uh, magnets come up constantly. And the reason is because these magnets, they're permanent magnets. So they're not like if you've ever as a child tried to create a magnet. Um, they're not like that with a temporarily magnetized force. They're, they're a permanent magnet. And uh, they're used in a variety of different uh, products. Um, these days, they're in pretty much everything that's cutting edge. Anything with a hard disk drive, so that includes your laptop and your smartphone, obviously anything with a significant amount of memory storage, computer memory storage in it, requires these magnets. But also um, Teslas, electric vehicles. So as I said, China's manufacturing 90% of them, which is an awful lot, obviously. But it's also processing the rare earth metals that are required for it. One other industry that, that's very reliant on not just uh, the magnets, but also rare earth is green tech green technology. The magnets are, are needed in, um, in wind turbines, but I think the rare earth metals are also used in stuff like solar panels and so on. That's right. China clearly has a stranglehold over the mining and production of rare earth metals, certainly in terms of taking the mined product and processing uh, them into industrially useful materials. China has at least 85% or so of the processing capacity in the world. So they really do have a, a, a stranglehold. One of the interesting misconceptions about rare earth metals is they're not actually that rare. They're very common in the world. The problem is um, finding them in concentrations that are economically viable to mine, actually. That doesn't happen so often. The other issue, of course, is that to process them, it's quite environmentally unfriendly. 
and I don't mean that in a in a kind of a, a, a sandal wearing green way. I mean it's a it, it's a pretty dirty process, and it's not the sort of thing that Western politicians who like to burnish themselves with green credentials want to have in their local constituency. The other issue, of course, is that it does take a long time, uh, a, a lot of lead time, as a lot of you know industrial build out does, to go from having very little or no processing capacity to building enough processing capacity to see your own needs. So for all of these reasons, um, the United States and the West in general is quite reliant on China for these rare earth metals. Um, and they are, as you say, through these kind of uh, permanent magnets and for other rare earth purposes, very important for modern life. A lot of the things that we take for granted, the computer that we're using now, the mobile phone I use, probably the probably the microphone for all I know, contain rare earth metals. Certainly the defense industry contains them. They're in large quantities in modern fighter jets, in missiles, in drones, all of them absolutely reliant on rare earths. Now, the US does have some processing capacity. It does have some companies involved in this. There's MP materials, there's Linus rare earths, and they do have a little bit of processing capacity but it's a very small part of the market. And while uh, Linus is in the process of ramping up its production, and I'm sure the US government is very keen on them to do so, given China's dominance in this area and the, and the, uh, and the crucial nature of these rare earths for uh, our modern economy, and also the sort of industries that we're very keen on at the moment, green industries, as you mentioned, and high-tech industries. I'm sure the US are very keen Linus and, and and perhaps M- MP as well to expand their production. It's still a very small fraction of the world market, and it's going to take a long time for that to ramp up. So for now, China does have quite a stranglehold. This potentially is an area that they could um, strike back or, or, or retaliate against US sanctions and do a bit of damage. I would have thought, but you know, I think both of us are not necessarily persuaded in general about the utility and benefits of sanctions and their ability to to achieve political goals. We've often been accused, or at least I've been accused on Twitter, of being like some outrageously anti-Western malevolent force uh, who constantly criticizes Western policies because they're Western. Well, I think we can now show that we're equal opportunity sanctions critics. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's maybe time for us to be called a Biden shill. Yeah, so I'm going to do my <laughs> mandatory Biden shilling for the year 2023 right now. Um, uh, and we'll get back to Putin shilling uh, shortly after. The sanctions haven't worked great. <laughs> I think that's pretty much uh, conventional wisdom at this point. By that, I mean the sanctions on Russia. Sanctions of commercially available products are going to be very, very difficult to do because you can always just buy the product from a third party country um, and there'll be every sort of incentive there for people in that third party country to buy the products from the country doing doing the sanctioning and passing them on to the country. So the sanctions themselves probably will leak because it's commercially available technology that's in basically everything. On top of that, it's not in China's long term interest. This is, again, a a criticism we've levied at the Russian sanctions, and it's true. 
um, and also at the chip ban. What it will do is uh, is have the West build out their own rare earth industry, and that will diminish China's importance on the world stage in terms of their rare earth metals. So everything that we've ever said about sanctions that the West imposes apply just as readily to these. As you say, rare earth makes you think that there's a limited amount buried in a very specific region in northern China. That's not the case. You, you, you can find these things, but there are challenges, as you've said. In fact, I'll just say before we move on, Japan had issues with importing rare earth metals from China after they had a dispute around a fisherman that the Japanese arrested in 2010. And the ban only lasted two months, but it shook the Japanese out of their complacency. And now they only rely for 60% of their rare earth metals apply from China. And they're currently actually looking into trying to obtain domestic rare earth deposits from deep sea around uh, Japan. So that shows very clearly that if you weaponize these trade relations, it can cause your enemy or your opponent to adapt in ways that are detrimental to your interests long term. That said, I increasingly suspect that there's a very specific reason that the Chinese are targeting this market. Whether the sanctions work or not, and I think we lean toward they probably wouldn't work, they will raise costs Okay, they will raise the prices of these things for all the intermediaries and everything, just like what's happening in India with the Russian oil. And they'll make everything really unreliable. They'll make supply chains really unreliable for at least a period in which the West tries to refigure out the market. So it would be imposing these sanctions may not work, but it would be enormously disruptive. And I think what the Chinese are doing is that they're targeting America's most innovative and influential sector, which is the tech sector, led by people like Elon Musk and the Silicon Valley tech crowd. And I think that by threatening this, they're going to scare the pants off these guys. The way I I don't know if, if our listeners have much exposure to how Silicon Valley works, but or the whole tech sector in America, they they see China as this faraway manufacturer. And they make their plans in America and they just assume that the Chinese are going to fill the orders and that they're going to do what they say because the Chinese are very efficient at doing that. They're, they're a very efficient manufacturing economy. And they've been relying on, on the Chinese for so long and they've got into relationships, business relationships and so on. I can only imagine being uh, you know, a, a, a chief executive at Tesla right now or at, um, at Apple or something like that, and looking at this headline saying that China's con- uh, uh, considering these things and just saying, that can't happen. That'll be, a, that'll be the biggest nightmare for my company that I'll ever experience. And so what will probably come of this is massive lobbying efforts by the techies to not do this. And I think possibly that's what the Chinese are trying to do. Now, I may be wrong, and they may be going all in with sanctions and making the same mistake that the West is making. But it'll be interesting to see now how the tech executives respond. Or we may never see it because it might take place behind closed doors. But I think that could be the strategy. I think there's one crucial difference, and it really is a crucial difference between, I mean, there's nothing been decided yet, but if China did decide to go this route, the main difference is that the West tried to sanction something that Russia was selling. It tried to sanction oil and gas. And everybody needs oil and gas. 
So there were always going to be some people who were willing to buy oil and gas, especially at kind of below that specific level. What China is doing is it's it's considering something, sanctioning something that it controls. In that sense, it might be far closer to something like the 1970s oil embargoes that the that the Arab nations imposed in response to Western support for Israel uh, during the Yom Kippur War, I believe it was. I get confused between the Yom Kippur and the Six Days, but I think it was the Yom Kippur War that led to the Arab oil embargo and the energy shock, which really sent inflation through the roof. So it might be easier to see it in that way. And because they've got such a stranglehold on this market, at least 85%, and some estimates suggest even more of actual um, actual processing of rare earths to make them uh, useful for their various industrial uses, that's something that's slightly different from trying to sanction things that Russia itself is selling. Uh, and as I say, you're 100% right. At, at a moment when the US is really trying to get inflation under control, further dislocating a key supply chain. We've seen how the price of cars went up over the last few years because of the semiconductor and microchip shortage because of cars. If suddenly you inject rare earths into that as well, there could be a real issue. The, the other point I would say about this is there's a real kind of political target. The United States is shifting towards rearmament and specifically rearmament to defend its position within the Western Pacific, i.e. China's backyard. These rare earths are of paramount importance to that rearmament process. They're not going to be able to make missiles, drones, fighter jets, satellites, all kinds of things that they need to make without these rare earths. Now, obviously, they'll get them eventually, but it'll be much more expensive, and it'll take years and years and years perhaps even decades, for them to build up their own production to cover the difference. So it might even have that kind of aim as well, perhaps not to stop the U.S. uh, military-industrial complex, but to slow it a little bit, especially after it's been emptied by sending a great deal of uh, materiel to Ukraine. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That is a good point, and and it raises a sort of an irony, doesn't it? Because the American chip ban that was placed on China was um, targeted ostensibly at their military preparedness. But as we discussed on the podcast, these military tech, these um, the, the high end chips that were banned aren't actually currently being used in military technology. They they require lower end chips. So what they were actually doing was trying to hobble future developments in the Chinese military. Well, it looks like, if you're correct, China have found a way to immediately hurt American military readiness. And maybe that could send a signal and say, you know, this stuff can get out of hand very quick, number one. But number two, America, while it may lead the way in technology in some ways over China, China being this just hard manufacturing power can have a lot more of an immediate impact on your military preparedness and your economy. We are fresh from a huge victory.